Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports, episode 287. And um, I'm not going to lie, this episode is later than I wanted. And uh, I'm not going to apologize for that, but I do want to explain how that happened and why that happened. Um, it's it's frustratingly easy to get behind in this business. I mean, you like like two things happen, you're behind. Uh, I mean, first of all, I got a good night's sleep. I think people don't realize how little I sleep, honestly. Uh, I had a real honest good night's sleep, and uh, that put me behind a little bit more than I wanted later in the day, I guess. And then I had a funeral on Saturday. My friend's mom died. And I, I think in life you got to show up for those the people you care about. And, um, I mean, I, I feel like I'm already honestly not – I don't do, I'm like shamefully bad at showing up for the people I care about anyway. I'm just consumed all the time working. And so um, I wanted to put this out, you know, yesterday morning, honestly. And so I apologize it's late. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, in my own head, not be so hard on myself, not have these crazy, really hard to hit deadlines, but I, I still do it just because that's who I am. Um, but I also, I'm trying to learn how to live in my own bubble and make content like, just put out what I have when it's out and not worry so much about the outside world. Um, I don't know, man. I, I'm just doing my best. I'm doing the very best I can. I think that's what matters. Today we're going to talk about Bill Belichick. Um, kind of a a fun story. I don't think I've ever talked about about Bill on this show. We're going to talk about the New York Jets. We'll talk about college football probably a lot more than I ever have on this show. We'll talk about the Ravens. Lamar Jackson, the Kansas City Chiefs, Patrick Mahomes. They played each other on Monday Night Football. We'll talk about what happened. We're going to talk about the Packers, Drew Brees, the Saints, the Bears-Falcons game. Finally, the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is over. That's going to be fun to talk about. Um, you know, Texas, uh, Texas beat Texas Tech, Oklahoma, Mississippi State. A lot of stuff in today's episode. I want to start today. I guess really I want to start with the Jets. Did anybody see the Jets post game? press conferences this weekend, you know, their post-game interviews. You know, the Jets got beat by the Colts 36-7. to It was an ugly game. Uh, the New York quarterback, Sam Darnold, had three interceptions. Two of them were returned for touchdowns. And Sam's post-game press conference, oh, boy, it was terrible. It was, I, I just, I don't know, somebody needs to tell Sam Darnold to shut up, honestly. He is way too honest with the media. It just it it's hard to watch. He treats the media like they're his friend, and I I I don't know if I'm I don't really consider myself part of the media because I try to be I, I consider myself a storyteller even though it's not quite true. But let me tell you, the people at a press conference after a game are not your friend. The people conducting those interviews, writing stories Monday morning about the Sunday the NFL game in New York, especially. Do not help them. They, they will burn you for money in an instant. And the first question of the day for Sam Darnold was, you had three interceptions. Take me through those three interceptions. It's like, don't answer that. Your answer should be some form of uh, F you, no. And instead, for some reason, Sam Darnold did. He took them through every single interception. And I'm watching thinking, stop talking. Stop talking. Holy cannoli, he's still talking. Looking at my dad. My dad and I are watching the other. I'm like, Sam, stop talking. Shut up, dude. 
And I've said before that the only reason the Jets should draft a quarterback in the upcoming NFL draft is if they believe they need to replace Sam Darnold because his spirit is broken or his confidence is just completely shot. And in that press conference, Sam Darnold looked, I I don't know, we'll see how the year goes on. In that post-game press conference, he looked beaten, dejected, and lost. And I'm sitting, my dad and I are watching this, and I'm looking at my dad wondering, like, where's Sam Darnold's dad? Where is this dude's father? What's happening here? Why is nobody helping Sam Darnold? Like, I mean, the Jets media and PR team is just failing him horribly. Why is no one ushering him out of the room, telling him to shut up or say a little bit less at a press conference? I don't understand. I I just, oh my gosh. You know, Sam Darnold has problems, but... You watch the dude play football. His talent is undeniable. Uh, he looks a lot like he did at USC where Sam is really good and he'll elevate your team a little bit, but he's got some game break. Like watch watch Ohio State versus USC when Sam was in college. There's some bad throws. There's some ugly interceptions. You still see that a couple years out of college. It's like, okay, Sam's got to get better at some point. But it still makes me sad to feel like Sam Darnold's development is a massive missed opportunity where the guy has the talent and he's never had a good team around him, and he's never had a good coach that you can say, wow, I feel good about this coach. And let's talk about that coach because i got to say, first of all, my number one message to any young quarterback, whether they're in high school, college, I, I believe it or not, I do talk to some guys that are going to the NFL, and I always tell them, man, avoid a bad program. Avoid a bad organization. Avoid a bad college football program or an organization or a franchise. Avoid them like the plague because – And this is not just football advice, I guess, honestly, either. You do not want to work for a dysfunctional organization, a bad company with bad leadership that's poorly run. It's not good for you as a human being. If you can avoid it, do it. Now, some of us need jobs, and we can't avoid it, and that's a painful reality of life. But if you can, do not work for a bad organization. I look at Joe Burrow. I think Joe Burrow has a a better opportunity than Sam Darnold to do good things in Cincinnati. Did you see, oh my gosh, did you see Joe Burrow's face after tying with the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday? Not happy. He was pissed. And I, I, Joe Burrow keeps playing really, really well and losing or tying with the Philadelphia Eagles. I feel bad for quarterbacks that play for bad organizations. And I, I encourage people, do not, if you can avoid it, make the Jets somebody else's problem. Do not play for the New York Jets if you don't have to. Now, after watching Sam Darnold's press conference, I watched the Jets head coach, Adam Gase, do his post-game press conference. And the dude, Adam Gase, I mean, is like slouched over. He's literally got his hat down. He's hiding behind the bill of his hat. That guy's not a leader. If your coach loses, you want the guy to be defiant and believe in himself. And Adam Gase just looks beaten and like you, like you hit him over the head with a bat or something. He looks like he's dejected and sad. That guy is not a leader. I mean, look, not a good leader at the very least. And I would not let that guy work with my son or my friend or anybody I cared with. That guy is not the kind of person I'd want anybody I cared with working with. And it honestly looks like Adam Gase is just waiting to be fired. He's sitting around probably for some kind of financial benefit, hoping that if he gets fired, he probably gets paid more than if he resigns. Honestly, that is my like conspiracy theory there is that Adam Gase realizes he'll make more money if the Jets just 
fire him. I don't know what's going on there, but he does not look like a confident guy who believes he can win in New York at all. You know, I played the video. I watched the Sam Darnold press conference, then the Adam Gase press conference. I watched them at halftime of the Monday night football game. And all my friends and family watching the game with me just lost all their energy. They looked dejected. It was terrible. They're on their phones. The energy just like got sucked out of the room. And I guess that's the effect that Adam Gase has on a room. I mean, he just really, like Adam Gase was the most depressing thing I've seen in a long time. And then now there's this rumor circulating that if the Jets lose on Thursday night football to the Denver Broncos, then apparently the Jets are going to fire Adam Gase. And I just wonder why. Like, why is that the, the theorized plan? It's a rumor. If it's true, that's really, really stupid. If you want to fire Adam Gase, just pull the trigger. Do it. Don't threaten him with a weird win-loss thing. Like, no, it's, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for Adam Gase. It's not good for the players. It's not good for anybody. It's bad for everybody involved. For that to be the case, if, it's, if you win, you keep your job. If you lose, you're fired. That's supremely dysfunctional. And that's what the Jets are. The Jets are dysfunctional. The next up-and-coming coach in the NFL is named Eric Bieniemy. He is the offensive coordinator for the Kansas City Chiefs. If I were Eric Bieniemy, I would avoid the Jets at all costs. Do not make the Jets your problem. Let the Jets be somebody else's problem. I would not leave a great situation. You have Patrick Mahomes as your quarterback. You're winning. Life is good. People think you're a genius. Eric Bieniemy, do not leave Kansas City for the New York Jets. I am begging you. I am warning you. I, I'm not. You're a good coach. I don't think you're. I don't think anybody's really good enough to turn around the Jets at this point. Um, and I, I just, man, let some sucker take that job. Do not make the Jets your problem. I, I just would not leave a good situation in Kansas City for a dysfunctional organization like the Jets. I don't know, man. I, I would not take that job, and uh, I feel bad for Jets fans, man. Honestly, the things I see from people I know that are Jets fans are like, yeah, that's the Jets. And it's like, why is that the Jets? Doesn't why why do people choose to follow a team that's this bad and this depressing? It just it's I, I just feel bad for people that have like they don't the Jets don't choose their head coach. I mean Jets fans, excuse me. If you're a fan of the New York Jets, you have not made any choices to lead you to this pain other than liking a team with an interesting green color. I feel bad for you guys, man. I just you don't deserve what's going on. And I think a lot of people are victims of the Jets, and it's just painful. It's horrible. And uh, they are just a supremely dysfunctional organization. I want to talk about Bill Belichick real quick. There's this thing, man. Um, watching the New York Jets struggle reminds me of my favorite Bill Belichick moment of his entire career. Bill Belichick has been the head coach of the New England Patriots for 21 years. He's won six Super Bowls in that time frame. He's a legend. He's literally the greatest coach of all time. But Bill Belichick made a decision before getting to New England that made all of his winning with the Patriots possible. 
my favorite personal quality, before I get into his favorite moment, my favorite thing about Belichick is, I mean, he's a genius. He does a lot of things right. But my favorite thing about Bill Belichick is he doesn't really care what other people think. And he's never been afraid of being unique or being different. He'll do what he believes is right. Even if nobody else, like how many, how many, how rare is that to find someone? You ever been in a, a classroom situation? People are literally afraid to be different. Like, oh, what if I stand out? Belichick comes up with holes in his shirt, doesn't care, does not care, does what he thinks is right. No fear of being unique or different. Bill made one of the, Bill made a move that I guess I don't believe most coaches in the NFL have either the confidence or the self-awareness to do. I think both. It takes self-confidence and self-awareness to do what Bill Belichick did. Bill Belichick was once made the head coach of the New York Jets, and he was that in that position for one day, for 24 hours, and then he resigned. He stepped down. No one talks about this very often. It's a thing that I think is kind of lost in history at this point. Now, if I give you the short version, like the Cliff Notes version of this story— um, I, I want to encourage you, go do more research if you want to. I would start with a 30 for 30 documentary called The Two Bills about Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. But the short version of the story is that he was the Jets coach for 24 hours and then he resigned. Now, Bill Belichick is famous for saying absolutely nothing at his press conferences. He does not give you anything. But when he resigned from the Jets' head coaching job, Bill gave a ton of information, like a shockingly large amount of stuff he said at the press conference. I went, oh, you watch the video. It's out there somewhere. I'll put a link. If you're on YouTube, I'll put a link in the bio somewhere or in the description somewhere or something in the comments maybe. Um, It's shocking how much Bill keeps talking and talking and talking. And he explained in detail exactly why He was making the decision he made, why he's doing what he's doing. And I would argue that this press conference is one of the earliest moments of Bill Belichick really kind of flexing his muscles and showing his true genius, where he was well aware how weird it is to have a job and then quit it 24 hours later. And so when he talked to the media, all he was really doing was talking to his next employer, saying, hey, Here's my case. Here's what I care about. Here's where I want to be. Here's what I believe I can do. Bill Belichick was very careful to do two things. Number one, he was very careful to not bash anybody associated with the New York Jets. But number two, he was also careful to make it clear he wanted to coach and he believed in himself as a head coach in the NFL. But he also then pointed out the uncertainty with the Jets' ownership. The former Jets' owner, Leon Hess, had recently died. And the new potential owners of the Jets were either going to be James Dolan, who's all kinds of bad with the New York Knicks, or Woody Johnson, who ended up buying the team of Johnson & Johnson, the pharmaceutical company. And after the fact, years later, Bill Belichick has said that he had problems with both potential owners. But Bill Belichick did something that Most football coaches do not have the confidence or self-awareness to do. He realized, he looked around and said, wow, I am in a bad, bad situation. And he quit after just one day. And I want you to think about something. 
If you take a job tomorrow at a movie theater or a grocery store or a car wash, you show up on your first day of work, and it's not good. And you're like, oh, well, the, the boss is mean. Uh, the the car wash is wet. I hate getting wet all the time. Or, you know, I hate making popcorn in the movie theater. You can quit your job after one day at a lot of jobs, and nobody really knows about it. No one's the wiser, right? Um, now, a job like the Jets head coach is not the kind of job you can do that at. It's a big, public, forward-facing job that millions and millions of people care about. You cannot quietly quit that job after one day and not have a, not have a lot of people notice. And remember, this is before Bill Belichick had joined the Patriots. This is before he had proven himself to be the greatest NFL head coach in history. He didn't have the cachet or the reputation he has now. In fact, all he really had was that he was once the head coach in Cleveland, and he got fired. Now, I would say he got fired unfairly. He did fairly well in Cleveland, got fired during a transitional phase, and they got moved from Cleveland to Baltimore, and the name got changed. But people don't remember that stuff. A lot of the time people go, you got fired, and that's all they remember about you. They don't remember context. People don't care about context. They care about the way something sounds. And so Bill said in his press conference that, Going through the firing with the Browns and having the transition happen was hard on him and his family. He said, I don't want to do that again. And I applaud Bill Belichick for his self-awareness. If he had stayed with the Jets, we might have never, ever seen him become what he became with the Patriots. It's kind of crazy. What could have been? We might have never seen the Patriots become a dynasty, literally, in the NFL, if he'd stayed with the Jets, it's insane to think about. And I want to applaud him because most people don't know what they want, let alone what they don't want. Bill knew both. He knew exactly what he wanted, and he knew exactly the situation he wanted to avoid. That's so impressive. It says a lot about Bill's mind and how smart he is. And maybe one of the greatest moves Bill Belichick has ever made was simply avoiding the Jets, avoiding being the head coach of the New York Jets might be the greatest move Bill Belichick has ever made. Crazy to think about. Uh, it's especially relevant as you watch the Jets go through all the pain and turmoil they're going through now. And uh, I just, that's one of my favorite Bill Belichick moves of all time. I appreciate it. I applaud it. And what a, I, I guess the word is ballsy move by Bill Belichick to know, hey, this situation I'm in, it ain't going to work. It's not good, Chief, and I'm going to walk away. I think that that's pretty pretty impressive and pretty cool to me when I watch all that. Okay, I want to talk about Monday Night Football. Uh, I need some pineapple juice first. I'm having a hard time talking today. It's just, uh, I don't know. Maybe my volume's turned up too loud in my ear. Maybe it's the echo. I don't know what's going on. Um, yeah, that does sound a little bit better. It's easier for some reason when you can't hear yourself quite as well. Otherwise, you hear every little tiny thing going on in your ears. It's not very fun. Um, mm. On Monday Night Football, the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Baltimore Ravens 34-20. to And at number one, Patrick Mahomes, the Chiefs quarterback, was amazing as always. He was 31 for 42 passing, 385 yards Four touchdowns, no interceptions, and he made just ridiculous play after ridiculous play after, quite frankly, ridiculous play. He was so good to watch. 
He had this incredible throw to Tyree Kill for a touchdown on a corner route where coverage was good, and it was just a perfect throw that I felt bad for the defender. Like, you're in the right spot. That's just an incredible throw that no one else can make in the NFL. Or, you know, he launched a long touchdown off his back foot to McCole Hardman for like a 65-yard touchdown. You went, oh, my gosh. That's crazy. He had a dime on a corner route to Clyde Edwards-Hilaire down the left sideline. Uh, right over Patrick Queen. It's funny, it's like an LSU on LSU crime where the linebacker just could not guard the running back. Great throw there. He had another play where he stepped up for a first. He stepped up, threw it for a first down. He had another play where third and ten, like, oh, they got him. And, of course, he just runs to the outside, gets to the edge, runs for a first down. I mean, countless plays that Patrick Mahomes made where I went, I just, this guy is so good. He's far and away the best in the NFL. And, I mean, the truth, though, is that's what's expected of Patrick Mahomes. Anytime you watch Patrick Mahomes play, it's not boring, but you know what you're getting into. You very much expect him to be incredible, amazing, and dominant. And if you watched the game, it felt like Kansas City dominated the entire game. I mean, they were 10 for 13 on third down conversions. Uh, The Chiefs had 517 total yards of offense in contrast to Baltimore, who had 228. I mean, like, that's crazy how little, less than half the offensive yards. The Chiefs did not take one single sack. Patrick Mahomes was not sacked one time in that game, whereas Lamar Jackson, the Ravens quarterback, was sacked four times. And there's all this evidence that shows that Kansas City dominated this game. And that's why it's crazy to say that, despite all that stuff I just said, believe it or not, this was actually a seven-point game in the fourth quarter where the Ravens were down 27-20 to with an opportunity to make it an interesting, even closer game. And I really believe that the Ravens are a lot better than they looked even last night. Everyone's talking about the Ravens today. I got a lot of messages. One of them said, like, New Year, same Ravens. Like, they're just not very good. I'm like, I don't, I just don't believe that. Look at what happened. The Ravens gave up an embarrassing touchdown to Michael Hardman where it was just a blown assignment on defense. Guy was wide open, safety or whatever, even though it was flat-footed. Let Michael Hardman run right by him. And I really believe that this film, the film from this game, is going to help two different teams in the NFL. Number one, of course, it'll be the Ravens. The Ravens will get better from this because... They're going to look at film and say, wow, we had a lot, a lot of missed opportunities where we can be better. There was an incomplete pass where Lamar Jackson threw down the right sideline to Hollywood Brown, where he was open, and Hollywood Brown beat his man vertically, and Lamar tried to throw it on a line instead of leaving air under the ball, a different trajectory, a bad trajectory. If Lamar puts more air under the ball and throws that with a different trajectory, that's probably a touchdown, if not a gigantic completion to Hollywood Brown. And there were a ton of mistakes on defense for the Ravens. Uh, I wonder, honestly, why they didn't start the game with a little bit more urgency. I mean, a couple fourth downs early in this game, there were moments where two, in fact, where the Ravens kicked a field goal when I believe they should have gone for it. One of the most painful ones was early in the game on fourth and three from the eight-yard line. I'm just screaming at my TV, go for it. Don't kick a field goal. Try to get a touchdown. Try to get the first down here because... You're playing Patrick Mahomes. And it was like the Ravens didn't quite understand the gravity of that, where 
They need points. Don't take three points. Go get seven. You need every single point you can possibly get in this game. And there were also multiple points in this game where I thought Lamar Jackson should have extended the play. Like a third and five with no pressure. And he's throwing like a one-yard out route for a one-yard gain. Getting The receiver gets tackled immediately. And I go, why are you doing that, man? Like I get it. Peyton Manning or Tom Brady... For them, that's the right decision because, you know, a guy like Peyton Manning or Tom Brady, they're so limited physically. It's the right football move. Take what the defense gives you. Hope that your guy breaks a tackle, runs for a first down. But the rules are different for Lamar Jackson. He's got a different skill set, a more explosive, better skill set, in my opinion, than guys like Tom Brady and Peyton Manning where I want to see Lamar Jackson run and extend a play, keep it alive. Patrick Mahomes many times was doing that exact thing where he's like, I'm not, there's no one open. I'm not going to throw the ball. I'm going to keep it alive until I find exactly what I want downfield. Lamar didn't do that. And I went, hmm, I, I want to see that from Lamar Jackson. I want to see Lamar Jackson extend plays. It felt like, really, it felt like this. It felt like Lamar Jackson was trying to be an old school, prototypical quarterback. And the reality is, man, screw that, dude. Be yourself. You have this incredible skill set. Lamar Jackson, I think, is in his head a little bit. Like, people say, I'm a running back, and I, I can't win with my arm. And it's like, dude, shut out the noise. Do what you do best, which is use your legs, extend a play, run around. That's okay to do. Be yourself. Use your legs, man. I just, watching the game, I went, oh, Lamar, there's more in the tank for Lamar Jackson he could do in this game. And I guess kind of the overall theme of what I'm saying here is that the Ravens played poorly and the Ravens left a lot on the table. And yet in the fourth quarter, it was still a four, a seven point game, like a one score game in the fourth quarter, despite everything the Ravens could have done better. I I guess really who cares about that game? When you look ahead, you go, man, the film is going to help the Ravens down the road. Next time they play Kansas city. Whether maybe it's the playoffs, maybe it's I would think that they're gonna these two teams, the Ravens and the Chiefs, are gonna run into each other again. And the film from this game helps the Ravens a lot more than it's gonna help Kansas City. Because Kansas City sees a bunch of moments where they're like, "Yeah, we dominated, we were great." The Ravens are gonna see a bunch of moments where they can do little things better, and make a bunch of little tweaks. And I I think man, moving forward, the Ravens are in a good position after this game actually from what they can learn on film. Now, the film also helps the Patriots head coach, Bill Belichick. You may not know, the Patriots play Kansas City next weekend at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City with the, for the Chiefs. And I cannot wait to see Bill Belichick's plan on defense. I honestly, I have no idea how you stop Patrick Mahomes. I watch that game and I go... Well, uh, he can do literally anything. He's like a superhero. You're like, I I just don't know. But I would think that if you pressure him a ton, and certainly I would not let Patrick Mahomes run around and extend a play, make him get rid of the ball quickly. You hit him a bunch, you bring more than a four-man rush. Maybe he'll shred you anyways. He's really good. Seems like he can do anything he wants. But at the very least, don't just allow Patrick Mahomes to run around and extend a play put pressure on him and make him earn it at the very least, make him earn it. So I don't know. I, I just have no doubt that Bill Belichick watched that game, the Ravens and Kansas city and the gears started turning, man. He had probably a hundred ideas of, you know what? 
we could do this, we could do that, we could do this other thing, make a couple tweaks, man, that's how you stop Patrick Mahomes. And or at the very least, you can slow him down. And so I cannot wait to watch the Patriots play Mahomes next weekend. I don't know that the Patriots are going to win, but they're going to do something interesting on defense, and that's going to be worth watching in of itself is what is the game plan? What do they try to take away? What is the one thing the Patriots try to do against Patrick Mahomes? And uh, we all know that this, this is said a lot, and it's very true about Bill Belichick. His number one goal is to take away the one thing you do best. He's like, you can beat me, but you're going to have to beat me some way you've never beat anybody else before. Like, for example, in high school, we played a team that ran the ball incredibly well to the outside. And we're like, we're taking away that toss play. They're not going to run outside at all. We're going to set the edge. They're not going to run the ball. Now, they made an adjustment. They ran up the middle on us all day and destroyed us. But it's like, well, at least we made them earn it. We made them do something differently. So... I don't know what exactly Bill Belichick looks at when he sees the the Chiefs and goes, this is the one thing that they're best at we need to take away. I don't know. Um, but it's going to be fun to figure out, like, what does Bill Belichick look at with the with the Chiefs and go, is it Mahomes extending a play? Is it Clyde Edwards-Hilaire running the ball? Is it Clyde Edwards-Hilaire in the passing game? Is it Tyreek Hill and, you know, one-on-one coverage downfield? I have no idea. But it's going to be so fun to figure out and see what does Bill Belichick value as the best thing that the Chiefs do. And by the way, I, I got to be honest here. There was never a moment where, you know, my team in high school, you know, <laughs> was had a, a team that ran it outside a bunch. I mean, the reality is that you'd probably do some other kind of offensive adjustment. That's just trying to make an example where Bill Belichick likes to always find whatever a team does best and take it away. It's the easiest way I could communicate it that way. I felt weird about, the, like, the weird white lie there. Let me just be honest about it. Um, and, uh... Yeah, I just am curious to see what do the Patriots, in fact, um, value as the best thing the Chiefs do next Sunday at Arrowhead Stadium. Um, I, I just I cannot wait to watch Chiefs and Patriots next weekend. Guys, that's all I have right now. I want to take a short break. When I return, we're going to talk about the Bears and the Falcons. We'll talk about the fact that the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is finally over. Uh, we'll talk Packers. We'll talk Saints. We're going to do college football down the road. We'll talk about Kyle Trask. We'll talk about Oklahoma losing to uh, K-State. Mississippi State beat LSU. A lot of good stuff ahead. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right. I want to jump back in. You may or may not know. On Sunday, the Falcons blew yet another lead. It was so painful to watch. They lost to the Chicago Bears. And there's a lot I want to talk about from this game. You know, first of all, the Bears quarterback, Mitchell Trubisky, got benched. We'll talk about Nick Foles. Uh, the Falcons defense, we got a lot to say about them. But I want to start by saying that you would never, ever know that the Atlanta Falcons head coach, Dan Quinn, is supposed to be a defensive-minded head coach. It's so crazy to watch. The Falcons defense is so, so bad. Uh, even before the Bears came back and won the game, there were busted coverages. There were missed assignments, missed tackles. Such bad defense. It's kind of crazy. Again, I go like, how is their coach a defensive-minded guy? I don't understand. Now, I will say, in defense of Atlanta, they did have seven guys out of the game due to injuries. You know, they lost. There was no Julio Jones, their star receiver. 
No Caleb McGarry, their starting right tackle. They had five guys hurt on defense, three cornerbacks, including A.J. Terrell out with COVID. At a linebacker and defensive end. So big losses on defense, absolutely for sure. But still, the Falcons had the lead. You know, by the way, a 16-point lead with less than eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And the people keep saying, I keep hearing people say like, oh, can you believe the Falcons blew a 16-point lead in the fourth quarter? No, it was way, way worse than that. The Falcons had the lead halfway through the fourth quarter. They were up by 16 points, and they still lost the game. Now, the Falcons' defense kept giving opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to the Bears' offense. It was kind of crazy. Now, the reason why Mitchell Trubisky, the Bears' quarterback, got benched in this game was because he was repeatedly unable to take advantage of, quite frankly, the Falcons' mistakes. He was terrible at throwing the ball downfield. I mean, he had guys open multiple times, and he either didn't see them or wouldn't pull the trigger. There were times where, like, he had guys open vertically, and he's trying to throw the ball deep, and, like, he literally couldn't put enough in the ball to get it up and over defenders where he literally doesn't have the arm strength to throw a high-arcing deep ball. You go, dude... Your arm talent's awful. Now, plus, later on a third and two, Anthony Miller was wide open deep. Should have been a touchdown. And Trubisky missed a wide open easy pass. Not to mention on a third and five where there was a play where the Falcons had a busted coverage. Guy was wide open down the right sideline. I mean, guys, the Bears had a man wide open. Should have been an easy, easy touchdown. And Trubisky didn't even see him. He didn't throw him the ball, but he didn't even see the guy was open. It's like, how do you not recognize a busted coverage where a guy is wide open down the right sideline and not even give him the ball? And I just cannot imagine how infuriating it was for the Falcons during this game. Trubisky processes the game at a terrible, incredibly slow rate. He's got a bad arm, throws a weak spiral. Most of his completions in this game were a bunch of slants inside on little tiny five-yard throws. I I believe there was a point for the Bears coaching staff where they hit a breaking point realizing we have guys wide open deep and our our quarterback simply cannot hit those throws downfield. It's got to be frustrating for them. You know, they had this, not only that, you know, Trisky's final throw in the game was not vertically. He was throwing a little shallow crosser. Didn't even realize the linebacker sitting right there. Linebacker grabs it, picks it off. Uh, and the Bears realized, well, we literally cannot succeed with Trubisky at a, as our quarterback, whether we're throwing short, trying to throw it vertically, dinking and dunking. Nothing's working with Trubisky. We got to move on. And so they put in Nick Foles at quarterback. And Nick Foles stepped on the field immediately. His body language was better. He looked more confident. Now, he didn't set the world on fire. I want to be clear, like, Nick Foles was not the most amazing thing you've ever seen. Bears fans will tell you otherwise, uh, but, you know, the first drive for Nick Foles, in fact, on a third and six, it ended where he threw the ball into the end zone, and it got picked off. And you're like, that's kind of a weird, rather inglorious beginning to the Nick Foles era in Chicago. Now, later, Nick Foles had a big completion where he's extending the play through the ball, literally goes right through a Falcons defender's hands, Lands for a completion for the Bears, but that really wasn't a play that should have been a completion. There were little moments like that where you go, Nick Foles really has a lot to be desired. But at the very least, he was way, way better than Trubisky simply for the fact that he was finally throwing the ball downfield. It's like, thank you, goodness, please, at least the Bears have a quarterback 
who isn't just holding onto the ball, not throwing vertically to guys who are wide open downfield. Um, I, I hope that Nick Foles is the answer long-term for the Chicago Bears. I'm not sure that he is. Time will tell. But 110%, he is a much better option than Mitch Trubisky is. And uh, I just, man, I'm, I'm so glad that Nick Foles is now the quarterback. And Trubisky, in fact, is no longer the quarterback in Chicago. Now, the Falcons had an opportunity to win this game. It was an Atlanta ball. Atlanta had the ball. One minute, 53 left, down four points. And the Falcons were, in fact, even driving when Matt Ryan, the Falcons quarterback, threw an interception. It's like, oh, that's painful. The Bears are playing cover two. Matt throws this corner route and just hangs the ball up in the air, almost as if he didn't see that there was a safety there. Like, he didn't realize. It's one of the easiest interceptions the safety's ever going to have where Matt Ryan's got to drive that ball against cover two to the sideline. And uh, I just wonder, the Falcons at this point have a culture, really, of blowing leads. It happens so frequently in Atlanta that they blow a fourth-quarter lead. It's got to be in their heads at this point where they're thinking, man, we're up. We can't blow this lead. We can't let what happened happened in you know, the Super Bowl. We can't do what we did against the Cowboys. Now the Bears are like, we can't let what happened against Chicago. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for Atlanta. And unfortunately, I believe they need to hit the reset button. They need a new coach. They need new leadership. They need to try and make some changes. You know, it's, it's crazy. The Falcons even had the ball, you know, late in the game with the lead. Before the Bears took the lead, the Falcons had the ball four minutes left. With They were up 26-23, to 23, a three-point lead. And the Falcons called three straight passing plays. Just completely crazy to me. I'm like, how do you have... They had a 22-second drive with the lead late in the fourth quarter. And they didn't try to run the ball one time. I'm like, what in the world is going on? They made no attempt to try to run time off the clock. It was insane to me. And this is a game where the Falcons were actually running the ball very, very well throughout this game. Run the ball. Take some time off the clock. Eat away some of the clock. I don't understand. Just a a crazy unforced error for Atlanta. The Falcons are a mess. They need new leadership. And at this point, it's cliche, but it's actually true at this point. The Falcons have a culture of blowing leads. It's just awful. It's got to change. They need new leadership. And uh, I feel bad for Falcons fans. Now, after I drink my pineapple juice... I want to just, uh, this is a moment I want to just sit in for a second, enjoy, celebrate a little bit. I, uh, oh man, I'm so glad to say what I'm about to say next. I want to just take a moment to celebrate the fact that the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is now over. It's over. Nick Foles was just named the Bears starting quarterback moving forward. And I got to say, man, no quarterback I have ever watched has infuriated me as much as Mitchell Trubisky. No quarterback. This has just been an insanely long, frustrating saga. And I feel free. I can finally say it. Finally, it's over. Mitchell Trubisky is one of the worst quarterback draft picks ever in NFL history. Terrible, terrible, terrible pick. He only played one year in college as a starter, and I'd love to break down his film someday. If anybody has the Mitchell Trubisky North Carolina film and can send it to me, please do. I want to see it and analyze it. It'd be so much fun. 
Uh, the Bears drafted Trubisky ahead of Patrick Mahomes. They drafted him instead of Deshaun Watson. It's kind of crazy. I don't know what in the world the Bears saw when they drafted Mitchell Trubisky. I will never understand. It's complete insanity to me. Um, and honestly, I could not tell you what positives Mitchell Trubisky brings as a quarterback. I don't know. He's got a terrible arm. He processes the game incredibly slow. He makes terrible decisions. He's not a galvanizing leader. Bears fans, and I'm not a Bears fan, but I feel bad for Bears fans because they've been through this horrible, horrible time. They've been waiting and hoping and praying that Trubisky's going to work out. I just feel bad for those guys. I mean, I've gotten a lot of hate and anger from Bears fans over the years. I don't blame. I'm not even, I'm not mad. I'm not gloating in the segment. Like, there are moments occasionally where I get something right and I go, yeah, but this is not one of those moments. I just feel bad for Bears fans because these poor people have been hoping and hoping and hoping that Trubisky was going to make it work. And I get it, man. Their franchise relies on that. They needed Trubisky to work out. They needed their quarterback to become a guy that they could rely on. And Trubisky has never, ever, ever been that for them. I just feel bad for this group of people, Bears fans. And I find it so frustrating that (sighs) Mitchell Trubisky's gotten opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. Like when you watch Gardner Minshew with Jacksonville, people are constantly trying to find a reason to replace Gardner Minshew. The guy gets almost no opportunity and no chance. Trubisky with Chicago, because he was the number two overall pick, which was, again, one of the worst picks in NFL history as a quarterback. Because of that, he gets opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. It's If you put Gardner Minshew next to Trubisky, Gardner Minshew is so much better, it's crazy. And yet people are always looking to replace Gardner Minshew, and people keep giving opportunity after opportunity to Trubisky. It drives me nuts. He should never ever play quarterback for the Bears ever again unless maybe Nick Foles gets hurt, but he's still got to get replaced at the end of the year. I said this earlier. At best, at at the very, very best, Trubisky's average. He's not average. He's, he's worse than average. But on this best day, he's an average quarterback. Chicago, if you want to win a Super Bowl, you can't have an average quarterback. Go get better. Hey, by the way, at least you have a Super Bowl winning quarterback in Nick Foles. Thank goodness, man. I just, the reality is the Bears are lucky that they survived their first couple games of Mitchell Trubisky, where the Bears are 3-0, and and Trubisky didn't ruin their 2020 season. I just, man, I, the two quarterbacks in my lifetime watching play that drove me the most insane were Blake Bortles and Mitchell Trubisky, and I don't hate Bortles. I'm not going to say I hate Mitchell Trubisky. It's I I just the frustration over the years watching this dude play quarterback, the inconsistency, the crazy opportunities he kept getting over and over and over again. I have never been more frustrated watching any quarterback ever in my lifetime than Mitchell Trubisky. And uh, I don't mean to be mean spirited, but I am so happy for Bears fans that the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is finally Finally over. Like, oh, yes. That's how I actually feel. Like, I just, I can finally say it. I can finally call it out as awful. And daggummit, it was a just a brutal, I'm not a yeller, man. It was just a brutal four years. And uh, 
I'm so glad it's over. I'm so glad the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is over. You saw a guy just now on camera. Ugh. It's just, oh, just so good. It's over. It's over. Ah, I'm not even a Bears fan. Not even a little bit. I just love quarterback play. And I've had to watch this awful quarterback play for a couple of years now. I'm so glad the Mitchell Trubisky nightmare is over. Okay. Um, On Sunday night football, the Packers beat the Saints 37 to 20. And look, the Packers were very good. Aaron Rodgers, their quarterback, is awesome. They run the ball well. The Packers' defense is good. I feel very, very good about the Packers this year. But my main takeaway from this game is about Drew Brees. And I want to be very, very clear. I love Drew Brees. I read his book, Coming Back Stronger. My two favorite quarterbacks from now as a kid were Tom Brady and Drew Brees. I grew up loving them and watching them. And I'm not trying to be inflammatory or cause controversy. I just want to be clear. My actual opinion here is that after watching that game against the Packers, my immediate thought was, I believe this is Drew Brees' final year in the NFL. I think he's going to retire after this year. I know people see Drew Brees kind of like a football god, and so we're careful to, we, we kind of tiptoe around the truth with him, and he's awesome. He's a Hall of Famer. Lo- again, loved him growing up. I love Drew Brees a lot. He changed New Orleans forever. He helped them. You know, the the book Coming Back Stronger, if you haven't read it, it's incredible. And I know that another thing, you know, in defense of Drew Brees, right, the Saints are missing Michael Thomas at receiver, who is arguably, and a lot of people would say he is definitively, the best receiver in the NFL. Yes, for sure. Having Michael Thomas out hurts Drew Brees. But there are times where Drew Brees is sitting in the pocket and he looks downfield, he can see a receiver open, and yet he doesn't throw the ball because he doesn't have the confidence that he can complete that pass downfield. And in the NFL, if your receiver beats a man by one or two steps, that's open by a lot. I mean, that's, you, that's wide open. And the ball's got to be thrown. If your defender's down the left sideline beating your man by a step or two, you got to throw him the ball. And there are moments where... Four years ago, Drew Brees would have thrown that ball and pulled the trigger on those throws. And the reality is, through the first couple games of the year for the New Orleans Saints, Drew Brees has been the limiting factor for the Saints' offense. It's painful. It's harsh. Um, But Drew knows it, and defenses are starting to realize that, too. They're saying teams are daring New Orleans to throw the ball vertically, and they can't because their quarterback, unfortunately— Seems to not have the physical ability to do that. It's a painful, harsh reality. But because of that, and I think honestly, like for Drew Brees, it's not, it cannot be fun. If you're Drew Brees and you know guys are open and there are throws you should be making and yet you don't think you can, I don't think he's having a good time. I mean, it's got to feel terrible to feel like I, I need to do that and I physically cannot. I am the thing holding my team back. That's why I think it's Drew Brees' final year is he understands like, yeah, I'm good for the team. Yeah, I'm a good leader. I do this. I do that. But there's a point when you realize as a player, I'm not capable of what I used to be capable of anymore. And that's the point Drew Brees has finally hit. And that is why I believe it's Drew Brees' final year in the NFL. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. When I return, we'll talk about college football. We'll talk about Kyle Trask. 
the Florida quarterback. Mississippi State beat LSU. Texas had a crazy comeback. Uh, Oklahoma lost. What a weird game. Good stuff ahead, guys. My name is Zach Schaumler. I'm going to take a short break. I will be right back. All right, let's jump back into things. You may or may not know, the Florida Gators beat Ole Miss 51-35 on Saturday. I watched this game because I wanted to see Florida's quarterback, Kyle Trask, and I was not disappointed. The dude was 30 for 42 passing, had 416 yards, six touchdowns passing, zero interceptions. And Kyle Trask did so many good things in this game. I just really loved it, man. Uh, First of all, the dude was accurate. He made good decisions. It's supremely important to say that he was sending the ball to the right person almost every time. And he was also not just throwing to his first reads either. We saw him work across the field multiple times. Really, really good quarterback play by Kyle Trask. He moved well in the pocket. He had a play where he stepped up and threw it for a first down. I was really, really enjoying watching the guy play. And on Saturday, in his first game this year, Kyle Trask showed NFL habits where with timing, decision-making, ball location, it's only one game for sure, but I'm really, really excited to watch more from Kyle Trask this year. Uh, You know, on November 7th, they play Georgia. I'm hoping we get to see Florida play Alabama in the SEC championship game, but I couldn't believe it. You know, there was a couple times where Florida put in Emory Jones, their backup quarterback, because they like Emory Jones running the ball. And, I mean, look, Emory Jones had this awful interception where he started to run, then launched, like, this just flutter ball up in the air, got picked off. And it's just so weird. I want to watch Florida more because they better keep Emory Jones on the sideline. Their best quarterback option by far is Kyle Trask. And uh, it's worth pointing out that Florida does have the best tight end in college football, Kyle Pitts. You know, Kyle Trask had six touchdowns passing. Four of those touchdowns were to Kyle Pitts, their tight end. And the last touchdown pass Kyle Trask threw was not really a particularly amazing throw. It was Kyle Pitts catching a jump ball, just stealing it away from two defenders. And I got to say, I'm curious. We might, in fact, get this throughout the year where if Kyle Pitts gets hurt, I'll be curious to see what happens where how does Kyle Trask do without Kyle Pitts? I would think he would do well because he makes so many good decisions. But look, Kyle Trask showed... NFL habits on Saturday, for sure. Accuracy, timing, a lot of good stuff. But the big problem I have with Kyle Trask, and it's one that I still have not felt, I still feel very uneasy about, is Kyle Trask's ability to drive the ball. I guess it's arm strength, but it's more than arm strength. I mean, Kyle Trask is 6'5", 240 pounds, And a guy that big should drive the ball incredibly well downfield. I mean, he should be able to throw the ball on a line anywhere on the field. But what's weird is that, and even on balls, he should drive well. Kyle Trask, the ball just kind of floats out of his hand and meanders its way to his receivers. And I'm not trying to hate on the guy, nothing like that. Uh, But I really hope that Kyle Trask at some point can get a coach to help him and teach him how to use his core and his legs to drive the ball downfield because a guy his size should drive the ball way better with more velocity downfield. That's really my main concern with him. He's accurate. He's got great timing. He makes good decisions. He's poised. People like him. But, man, I wish that Kyle Trask drove the ball better with his core and with his legs 
And uh, we'll see. I'm, I'm really excited. I mean, Kyle Trask grabbed my attention on Saturday. We'll watch how the year pans out. Um, but I think the key word here is NFL habits. The question is, maybe after this year when he goes to work and prepare for the NFL draft, is he going to get a coach that can help him learn how to use his physical tools even better to get more velocity on the ball, to drive the ball better downfield with his core and with his legs? That's what I want to see eventually down the road from Kyle Trask, as well as throughout the rest of this year. He's got to continue to show NFL habits with accuracy, with timing, with decision-making. But everything I saw on Saturday, man, against Ole Miss, I went, wow, Kyle Trask. That is really, really exciting, really cool stuff. And uh, I don't want to write him off, even though I don't love Kyle Trask's ability to, his arm strength and his arm talent is pretty average. The habits are there, and so I don't want to write him off yet, even though I'm not in love with his ability to drive the ball downfield. Now, on Saturday... Another game happened. On Saturday, Mississippi State beat LSU. And it was pretty cool. Mike Leach got his first win uh, for the Bulldogs as the MSU head coach. I don't know if they call them that. I know they say, like, Stark Vegas. And I, I'm going to say MSU a couple times. I know it's Mississippi State. I don't know what they call them there in Mississippi. I'm not from Mississippi. Uh, but I guess, you know, two things that stood out to me were, number one, Mississippi State's quarterback, K.J. Costello, had 200, what am I saying, 600, 623 yards passing, five touchdowns, two interceptions. And, uh, you know, what's not going to show up in the stat book, honestly, too, at the end of the game is that he overcame a lot from Mississippi State's offense, where Mississippi State kind of struggled with, you know, their center was having problems snapping the ball, literally. There were missed assignments on the offensive line. Guys kept coming free. Multiple moments where he had to step up in the pocket and try to make a play. And there were also a number of dropped passes. And you got to give credit because KJ Costello really could have had like, he could have like 700 yards passing if his team had executed everything properly. The dude deserves a lot of credit for his poise and for overcoming some of the, the really, the bad plays around him where, he is kind of the perfect quarterback for this Mississippi State team in transition with a new head coach where he's this veteran, stable quarterback. He's also a really cool story. I'm very happy for him because he transferred from Stanford as a grad transfer. And, I mean, Stanford's football program runs a completely different offense, and it's probably not a fun to play with because of their, quite frankly, lack of winning recently. And so I am just happy for KJ Costello because it seems like he's having a really good time winning throwing the ball a ton. Uh, just awesome for him. You know, he did have a couple of missed throws. He had a pick six where he threw behind his receiver. But you also got to give him credit. I mean, K.J. Costello threw some perfectly thrown balls up and over defenders into really tight windows. I walked away very, very impressed with K.J. Costello because at the end of the day, he elevated his team and made them better and helped them win the game and beat LSU. Now, I was not impressed with LSU on Saturday. And I feel kind of bad for them because, look, I'm not trying to take anything away from Mississippi State, but this is not the same team for LSU. I mean, as the year goes on, it's going to become even more and more painfully obvious that this is just not the same LSU team as we saw last year. Uh, Here's a crazy number and a crazy, I I guess it's technically a statistic, but it's really just a fact. LSU had 17 people leave their program early to go to the NFL. Like, yeah, they lost Joe Burrow. 
for sure. He's actually not one of the 17 because he was a senior anyway. He was going to leave for the NFL. No, they also lost 14 players who declared for the NFL draft early with eligibility. They could have come back and kept playing for LSU, and instead they left. Those guys were drafted in the 2020 NFL draft or are now on NFL teams. Plus, when COVID hit, and there was all this uncertainty going on. LSU lost another three players who opted out of the 2020 season to go prepare for the 2021 NFL draft. So basically, LSU just got completely gutted. They are a completely different team than they were last year. Not to mention, by the way, in this MSU game, they had an all-American corner, Derek Stingley, who got hurt. Had, he, got, he had some kind of allergic reaction. We got told he was sick. We don't really know what all came to fruition there, but they didn't have their best corner in this game either. And I just, man, LSU got absolutely gutted this offseason and losing player after player after player. I just, I feel so bad for them. By the way, the new LSU quarterback, Miles Brennan. Oh boy. Um, there's a reason that Miles Brennan was on the bench for four years. Kind of the biggest thing that sticks out. First of all, Miles Brennan is not terrible. Um, he throws the ball. He's got a pretty good arm. But attention to detail is just kind of a lacking thing. When you watch Joe Burrow, part of why Joe Burrow was so good was his insane attention to detail. You could tell during the offseason, at moments that are not during practice, he was working with his receivers, learning how to have perfect chemistry with them. And he kind of willed it into existence where Joe Burrow said, I'm going to do so much work. Me and these guys are going to be exactly in rhythm, when I'm rolling to the right, they're going to know where to go, where to come back to the ball, things like that. The attention to detail just isn't there with, you know, Miles Brennan. It's hard to watch. He's bad against the blitz. He's really bad outside of structure. Again, not terrible, has a solid arm, but it's he's not very fun to watch because he's just not Joe Burrow. He's a very typical LSU quarterback, a guy from the South that you know, is just tall, has a good arm, and is very average. It's just not a lot of fun to watch at LSU. Now, I do want to say every time I talk about LSU, I try to point this out. I absolutely love LSU Stadium, Death Valley. I hope I can go to a game there someday. I want to take my girlfriend, have a ton of fun. Um, but I also got to say, I fear that losing to Mississippi State is just the beginning of what's going to be a really tough year for LSU because they're simply not the same team they were last year. Um, and uh, they're going to win a couple games because they they got some talent and they're LSU, but I just I don't feel good about LSU moving forward. I think this was actually a sign of things to come, the way they lost to Mississippi State week one of their college football season. Now, did anybody watch the Texas versus Texas Tech game on Saturday? It was crazy. Texas won in overtime 63-56. to but here's the crazy part. Texas was actually down by 15 points with three minutes and 13 seconds left in the game. And by the way, down 15 points, three minutes to go, and they still won the game. It started with a quick 33-second touchdown drive. Bang. Eight-point game. You know, two minutes and 40 seconds left. Uh, then with that time, two, 240 left, they got an onside kick. They recovered it. They scored again with less than a minute left. Then they had to get the two-point conversion, which they got. They go to overtime. They win the game. It was so much fun. Watch the highlights. Um, I don't have a lot of crazy insight other than to say that, man, I really enjoyed that game. It was crazy wild fun. 
And uh, I just had a blast watching Texas beat Texas Tech on Saturday. Um, you know what? I was going to take a short break. I got two things left to talk about. Let's just power through. Uh, my throat is really, really struggling. I don't know what to do at this point. Pineapple juice, doctor visits. I just, uh, I don't know, man. I, I love talking for a living. I love what I do. Um, my throat has a hard time if I push a little bit more than talking for 17 minutes in a row, in a row I've learned. It's kind of weird. Uh, hydration's hard. I can do everything I possibly can. We're going to push through. Two topics left. You may or may not know, on Saturday, Kansas State beat Oklahoma. This was a surprise upset. Now, for context, K-State lost week one to Arkansas State. Like, oh, what? Oh, and by the way, K-State has a bunch of dudes injured and hurt that aren't playing in this game. And Oklahoma was up 35-14 to 14 at one point in this game. Late in the game, in the third quarter even. And the quarterback, Spencer Rattler for Oklahoma, was rolling. He was awesome. In the first half, he was 17 for 19 with 181 yards Three touchdowns, and his two in- incompletions were also, I guess, interceptions. One was a ball on the right sideline, a little bit underthrown, just really a great play by the corner, stealing the ball away from the receiver. Uh, his first interception of the day was tipped up in the air, really not his fault. So Spencer Rattler was rolling on Saturday, playing very, very well. So what happened? How do you lose a game where you're leading 35-14 to 14 in the second half? Especially if you're Oklahoma, you score at will. And they were. Oklahoma was scoring at will in the first half of this game. So first of all, Oklahoma center Creed Humphrey got hurt. He might be a first-round NFL draft pick. He's really, really good at center. And uh, that's a painful loss that really affected them down the stretch on offense. Uh, So losing the offensive lineman hurts. Oklahoma also got killed by really big plays on defense where they let a lot of— they had a couple busted coverages— Really, the, tr- the truth is that Oklahoma let K-State back into this game with either defensive mistakes or a couple other mistakes. First of all, Oklahoma had a blown assignment, which led to a long K-State touchdown. They left a guy wide open, easy touchdown for K-State. That made the game 35-21. to Then OU fumbled on their next possession. That led to another K-State touchdown. Then it's now 35-28. to then Oklahoma on the next drive is punting to have a punt. Maybe it was the next drive. Maybe it was two drives later. I can't remember. Oklahoma then had a punt blocked. That put really good field possession for K-State. They scored another touchdown. Now it's 35-35. And uh, eight minutes left in the game. Tie game. And you'd think, well, hey, no worry. A tie game, sure, it's ugly. But, well, Oklahoma scores at will. They've had, you know, they've been doing really well all game. Yeah, a couple miscues. Oklahoma's going to be totally fine. But by that point, you're missing your center. The offensive line was really struggling. Pressure kept getting home to Spencer Rattler. And then even when Oklahoma did have success on offense, they had multiple times a you know just penalties that pulled them back. Not to mention on a fourth and one, they went for it. They had a quarterback sneak. Part of the problem was a new center where I'm sure that Spencer Rattler, who's almost never under center, probably never got under center snaps from the backup center, let alone on fourth and one. It's kind of weird. Fourth and one, you're Oklahoma. You're known for your crazy, creative offense. I was disappointed watching Oklahoma going, why on fourth and one is your play call a quarterback sneak? You're Oklahoma. You're Lincoln Riley. You're the most creative, innovative offensive coach in the entire country. 
that's your best play call in fourth and one? I I don't believe that. It's not true. I was very disappointed by that fourth and one call by Oklahoma. By the way, they didn't get the fourth down. Um, and I now the final nail in the coffin, I guess, for Oklahoma and Spencer Rattler was that his third interception was a bad throw high, you know, high and behind his receiver running to the right. Uh, and that's how Oklahoma lost to K-State. They just kind of blew the game wide open. The coaching failures, just defensive blown assignments, the offensive line was struggling. Spencer Rattler missed a throw, which Spencer Rattler, by the way, has like the craziest best arm in college football. For him to miss a throw like that is pretty mind-blowing. And uh, now moving forward, I got to say, for Oklahoma, I still feel really, really good about their quarterback, Spencer Rattler. Spencer Rattler is a star quarterback. His talent is undeniable. He's one of the premier quarterbacks in college football. I think he has probably the best arm talent in college football. And it's not just arm talent. He makes good decisions. He, despite I know three interceptions sound really bad. One wasn't his fault. One was a missed throw, and the other was just a great play by the defense. I go, okay, three probably should have been one. And, I mean, he has plays where he steps up, extends a play. And I think as you watch Oklahoma throughout the year, they're learning with a new quarterback who's getting his first year. They're going to learn that, okay, Oklahoma's got to extend the play a little bit more, probably roll out to the right, roll out to the left, get Spencer Rattler outside of the pocket, especially with their offensive line really struggling the way they are, the right tackle. Is it right? One of their tackles really was not doing I, – I don't know why I can't remember it, but I don't want to say the wrong one. They got a, a, a tackle who's a big concern on the offensive line. And um, now Oklahoma's defense is also a really, really big concern. I worry heavily about the Red River rivalry game against Texas, Texas versus Oklahoma. I Spencer Rattler's incredible. Texas is very solid, very consistently good. And uh, in the past, this game or not, just in general, Oklahoma's limiting factor has been their defense. And uh, it feels like that honestly might continue throughout the rest of this year. Now, one thing else that's worth talking about, K-State has this freshman running back, Deuce Vaughn. He's five foot five. He's a freshman, by the way, freshman running back. He might be five foot five and very short. He's still a big star. In college football, remember the name Deuce Vaughn. Against Oklahoma, he had eight carries for 45 yards and a touchdown. He also caught the ball four times for 129 yards receiving. He is a stud. I encourage you, do not forget the name Deuce Vaughn. He's an up-and-coming dude. He's a freshman in college football, and he is phenomenal. He looks like an NFL guy. I've only seen him play one time, and I went, oh, wow, yeah, that dude. NFL talent right away. Deuce Vaughn is awesome. He's a freshman, and he lit it up against Oklahoma on Saturday. Okay, last thing I want to talk about today. I need some pineapple juice first. Woo! Day's going by. On Sunday, we had the Russian Grand Prix in Sochi and Formula One. And uh, honestly, it was not the most exciting race I've ever seen in F1. Uh, Valtteri Bottas got first place. Max Verstappen got second. Lewis Hamilton took third. Lewis Hamilton was given a, well, I guess not one, but two five-second time penalties for illegal practice starts, which is just a weird, I've never, I, I, I don't, I don't know. F1 is very tacky. I get it. I understand that's the sport, but it's just frustrating that that's, that's the reason you're going to slow down Lewis Hamilton. It's just kind of weird and frustrating. Uh, that put Lewis Hamilton all the way back in 11th place in the middle of the race. So he had to chase and get all the way back to third place. And uh, while he he very pretty easily passed everybody else, 
you're not going to have Lewis Hamilton outpace Max Verstappen or Valtteri Bottas to catch all the way up to them. And uh, I'm not going to lie, this race really didn't grab me the way other races this year have. I don't know why. Uh, you know, at 6 a.m., maybe I was just tired. I don't think so. Though I've, there's never been a race of watching F1 where I've been like, why is this not grabbing me? And maybe I'm just subconsciously getting ready and excited for next year, and so I'm, I'm not as into this year. I don't know. Now, my favorite part of this race in Sochi was, and I hope Sochi or Sachi, I, I don't know. I'm not Russian. I have no idea. I've never said that word in my life. Even for the Olympics, I never paid attention at that point. Um, my favorite part of this race, though, was when you had a train of Lando Norris, George Russell, and Alex Albin. And it was fun, man. It was interesting, back and forth, really cool racing where Lando, Russell, Albin, they're all fighting really hard trying to for positioning. And I was just really, really cool. Now, eventually... Lando and Alex pulled away, and they left George Russell and his Williams just in the dust. But that was a really fun battle for that little brief period we got. That probably my favorite highlight of the race. Uh, it was also pretty cool. Daniel Ricciardo got a five-second time penalty. And so watching him try to get five seconds ahead of the guy in sixth place, I, I believe it's Charles Leclerc, trying to hold the spot, stay ahead so he could, in fact, uh, finish in fifth place and not lose his positioning due to the five-second time penalty. That was a fun bit of drama. Now, as you look after this race, the battle for third and fourth place in the F1 constructor standings are really, really the most exciting part of the year. The, the drivers, third and fourth, and the constructors, third and fourth. Mercedes has 366 points. They're going to easily win uh, F1 this year. Red Bull is second with 142 points. But three, four, and five, third place, fourth place, and fifth place is all Really, really close and really, really interesting where McLaren is in third place with 106 points. Racing Point is in fourth place with 104 points. And Renault is in fifth place with 99 points. They're all really close. And that is going to be a really fun battle down the stretch between these couple teams. Uh, there are seven races left in Formula 1. And October 11th, we have the Germany, uh, the race in Germany. October 25th, we're going to Portugal. November 1st, Italy. November 15th, Turkey. November 29th, Bahrain. That's the inner track layout because, again, later on December 6th, we're at Bahrain again where it's the same location, different track layout, the outer track layout. And the final round 17 of F1 will be on December 13th in Abu Dhabi. Going to be a fun rest of the year. It's also worth noting that the battle for fourth in the driver's standings is going to be really fun to follow and track as well because there are six, six people battling for fourth place right now. Currently in fourth place, you have Lando Norris with 65 points. Right behind him in fifth place, currently of Alex Albin with 64 points. Daniel Ricciardo, 63 points in sixth. Charles Leclerc in seventh with 57 points. Lance Stroll also in eighth, also 57 points, but in eighth place for whatever reason. You have Lance Stroll. And in ninth right now, you have Sergio Perez with 56 points. So a nine-point gap between fourth place in the driver's standings and ninth place uh, really, really close, interesting battle. I don't want to put, you know, 11 points behind Sergio Perez as Pierre Gasly. He's got no chance, in my opinion, at getting uh, fourth place. I didn't mention him, but I am really curious to watch. If you're looking for drama or interesting down the stretch, what team gets third place in the drivers or in the Constructors' Cup championship, and what driver is going to get fourth place behind Valtteri Bottas, Lewis Hamilton, and Max Verstappen in the F1 driver standings? That is what I'm excited to watch moving forward. 
in Formula One as the year continues and as we go through the next seven races in F1. I'm having a blast. I really hope it's good. Um, but if you need something to follow, that is what you should follow as the year concludes. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. Thank you so very much for tuning in. I really, really appreciate you. I'm going to get this edited and put it out. I uh, hope you're having a great day. I love you so much. I love my job. And I hope you have a great day. Ba-dum-bum. Bam. Oh, before I go, expect more. You're hearing this. Expect to hear a lot more from me as the days go on this week. Uh, I've got a lot of stuff to put out. I'm very excited. I'm watching literally in like 10 minutes after I record this. I'm going to watch the Cardinals and the Lions, see what the heck happened in that game. Uh, I'll be watching that while this uploads. So I hope you have a great day. But um bum bam we are done.